This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Biologies refuse. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I am your host, Jim Minns. On this episode, The Wigs kick off with the discussion of the notorious visa cancellation and removal from Australia of the world number one tennis player, Novak Djokovic, on the basis he was unvaccinated and might encourage anti-vaccination sentiment. Secondly, The Wigs sit down with barrister Phil Bolton, SC, for a fascinating discussion about the life and career of the late great barrister Ian Barker, QC. Barker famously prosecuted Lindy Chamberlain and defended High Court Justice Lionel Murphy amongst a wide variety of well-known and lesser-known cases. In 1963, as a lawyer in Alice Springs, he was for a time the only legal practitioner between Port Augusta and Darwin. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, welcome to the Wigs. We're back for 2022. It's great to be back in the studio. Yay! Oh, fantastic. Let's go around in a circle. Felicity Graham. Jim Minns. How are you going? I am wonderful. Great. Great to be with you. Great to have you in Sydney. Thank you. You're very welcome. This is fantastic. The band is back, Mr. Stephen Lawrence. Hey, Jim. Great to be here. How are you? Man, I'm fantastic, to be honest. I've just been on three weeks' holidays. I'm relaxed. I no longer occupy a civic office. Yes. It's all good. It's good? You're not missing it? Not at all. Okay, good. Is it missing you? I mean, I miss the power, but... (laughs) I'm sorry to say I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that yes well no, no. Mayor. yeah 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 is that the no type? that's actually mayor a thing emeritus. that's actually a thing which I'm not you have to have done five years I need five minutes so. okay can oh, I call yeah. you emeritus <laughs> you just filled a casual vacancy in the mayoralty didn't you or something like that um, not a casual. Well, yeah, I we might get into the specifics, term, but let's not. Move yes, on okay. <laughs> Emmanuel Kirkusharian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How are you going, sir? I'm well. Good. That's all I got. I had a miserable summer. Had Why? COVID, you yeah. know, that I had COVID too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was. <laughs> so how oh, was it? Was it like how sick were you? It was like. A bad, but not the worst flu I've ever experienced. But like man flu, flu, no, no, flu, cold, flu, flu. flu. So um, not as bad as man flu. No. <laughs> Guys, man flu. Listen, is yeah, way worse. That kind of misandry. Is that a, I don't need <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Thanks, yeah, Tony Abbott. Yeah, yes, yeah, please. Fine. No, no place here. Mm. <laughs> no, this is a misandry and. Free zone. Although my wife was about, you know, was completely happy when she had it and I was whinging. So you spread it? Something to be said. Yeah. No, but my whole family got it, I think, probably oh, yeah. on Christmas Day. Bummer. Yeah. You invited uh, me to that Christmas party. I know. Sad you were there, but you also had <laughs> I it. I got it anyway. Yeah. yeah. So did you get it on Christmas Day? I, I think so. I didn't find out I had it. I tested positive on New Year's Eve. So. Mm. Bummer. Uh, Bummer. Anyway, Happy New Year. How it's, are you, Jim? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah, thanks a lot. Good to be here in the studio in person. We've got a lot to talk about. It's a great show lined up. Uh, a lot of legality-ness happened uh, in, since uh, last time we spoke. My vocabulary dropped uh, since getting COVID. Mm. And also, uh, we've got a special guest in the studio tonight, which is very exciting. So the, the audience is going to get a real kick out of this. So without further ado, we're going to talk about one of the biggest administrative legal bombs that went off in the last two months and that was the Novak Djokovic versus the Australian government scenario. Who? I think we have an audience question about it. We do. We've got a listener question. Hi, my name's Gabe and I'm a big fan of the Whigs. Why did they deny uh, Djokovic's visa? I too would like to know this. 
Who's going to start this one? I think we need to define who they is first. Hmm. Well, they's there, there's two different they's, they's, isn't there? The pro-vaxxers denied it. Yeah. So, I mean, the background is this, right? He, well, this isn't all of the background, but he lands in, he's given a visa. He flies in to Australia. He gets to Melbourne Airport where he is stopped from coming in and he is questioned by some Department of Immigration officers. Border Force officers. Border Force. Home Affairs, whatever. Yeah. Whatever they call it. It's all in, all in Home Affairs now, I think, isn't it? Yeah. So technically. Mm-hmm. And long story short, and we'll return to this, but long story short, they are the first people who deny him his visa. But he, but he was already granted a visa, didn't you say, at the start of your preamble there that like he was granted a visa. visa I think yeah an yeah. e-visa oh okay and okay entry visa right okay yeah. okay all right and so I mean that's that so he turns up and I think his flight landed at about midnight or something like that and um, they of course asked him whether or not he's vaccinated and he's not vaccinated uh, he claims to have an exemption um, and there's this really there's, there's this wonderful transcript of some of the conversation that this officer from Border Force, whatever the hell it's called, or whatever the department is, is having with him, where they just kind of are going through these pro forma steps with him, and he's suggesting to them that well, he's understanding is that he's got a right to be here and he's been given an exemption mm. and so on, and. Um, they, over the course of the next few hours, and remember this is quite early in the morning, um, interviewing him on and off. And obviously they're talking to him while this is going on and he's messaging people like his manager and so on and trying to get in touch with people. Mm-hmm. But um, he ultimately, they ultimately come into the room and say to him, well, we think you haven't met your visa requirements or words to that effect and we're going to kick you out now I've said that in a very sort of lax way you can go and read the transcript of this and what what you get is is this officer from the department reading through what appears to be a pro forma statement and this is like half past four in the morning at this point or something right yeah yeah Yeah. and he hasn't had access to a lawyer hasn't had access to his agent anything like that yeah and so he's like well you know can I at least have some time to talk to my people and talk to Tennis Australia mm-hmm. and so on and mm-hmm. talk to the people who I say have given me permission to mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. and they say yeah okay because what else are they going to say and then they come back sort of a few hours later and go actually no we made our minds up yeah um, and you're out before before he's had time to, to talk yes. to anyone and they do the thing where they try to sort of cajole him into agreeing with that yeah. And there's talk about giving him till 8.30, then there's not. And isn't there a reference to the official saying something like, look, my shift finishes yeah. soon? Yeah. And that was obviously quite an important factor to them. Mm. Really? At one yeah. point they say to him, we're going to give you the 20 minutes that we have to give you legally. And Djokovic says, so you're giving me legally 20 minutes to try to provide additional information that I don't have at 4 o'clock in the morning I mean, you kind of put me in a very awkward position where at four in the morning I can't call Director of Tennis Australia, I can't engage with anyone from the Victorian State Government through Tennis Australia. You put me in this very uncomfortable position. I just don't know what else I can do. Everything that 
I was asked to do is here because he'd already provided them all the documents, all the exemptions. That and he had no, he didn't have a l- solicitor with him or anything, obviously. No. He told me not to use my phone, so I'm not communicating with anybody. No one knows what's going on. We did everything we possibly can and just I really don't know what else I can tell you in this 20 minutes. And it sort of goes on like that for a while. Is that a direct quote? That's all That's all yeah. direct, mm. reading from the interview with wow. Water Force. And they just basically bowl on. So the issue in that was sort of at play then in terms of why they didn't just let him in and why they eventually cancelled it was that... So he was unvaccinated. There's a Commonwealth rule or policy that visitors should be vaccinated. There's uh, an exemption that's applied, which is where you've got a medical reason. He had submitted on his visa application that he was entitled to an exemption because he'd had COVID within the last six months. And there's a bit of a sort of controversy about this that plays out later in the case, but that is is a valid medical exemption reason. Is it? Among, yeah, yeah. Because that's a... There's some advice that says you don't get vaccinated if you've had COVID within six months because your chance of an adverse sort of side effect is higher. Mm. Mm. But there was a now, conflict <clears throat> between the way the state of Victoria approached that question and the Fed's approach. So the it. state of Victoria had accepted it. Then a, an application had been put to the Commonwealth for a visa, which had been granted. Yes. But I think that was granted in like an e-visa type thing, like not substantive consideration of it. And then when he turned up, he was asked the same question again. And there was obviously, you know, quite a different rule in terms of the Commonwealth approach. Yeah. So the, the, according to the what the Border Force officer said to Djokovic at the time... They say, you've also provided a copy of medical exemption issued by Tennis Australia. This medical exemption was issued on the grounds that the visa holder has recently recovered from COVID-19. Under the Biosecurity Act 2015, there are requirements for entry into Australian territory. These requirements include that international travellers make a declaration as to their vaccination status, either vaccinated, unvaccinated or medically contraindicated. Travellers may make a declaration that they have a medical contraindication and must provide evidence of that medical contraindication provided by the medical practitioner. Previous infection with COVID-19 is not considered a medical contraindication for COVID-19 vaccination in Australia. And that was on the basis that I think, according to the Commonwealth approach, you needed not only to have had COVID-19 within the previous six months, but to have had some substantial effects of the disease, symptomatic effect of the disease upon you. If you'd had if you'd tested positive for COVID but basically been asymptomatic or, you know, no real effect of the disease upon you, then that wasn't sufficient for a medical contraindication for the vaccination. Although my recollection is from I think watching the hearing that that may not have actually been the law. That is to say, what was stated there may not have actually been what the law was. Right, so that was the approach that Border Force took, that the Victorian exemption wasn't good enough. Because there's nothing in the law about it, I think. There's a biosecurity declaration that says some things about it, but that doesn't apply a rule of entry or not. Yeah. So it's sort of a discretionary thing, but there's policy that the Commonwealth applies. So it's a bit weird, isn't it, that that the Commonwealth is has left who can enter what state to the states 
except when you fly. And if you fly on a plane that comes from outside of Australia, it's up to them. But otherwise, they wash their hands. So he he fitted the Victorian requirements Mm -hmm. as per his correspondence with uh, Tennis Australia. Yeah, so what happened is he, as I understand it, he got certain documents together that showed that he'd had COVID, that he had antibodies that revealed that he'd had COVID, that that was all submitted to Tennis Australia. They then sought an independent medical panel to look at it, I think, blind, so not knowing that it was Djokovic. And there were some other tennis players that were in this category as well. I think at least one other woman got deported and didn't fight it like Djokovic. Um, Wasn't one let in? Yeah, so one was let in. Yeah. And then then around the same time that Djokovic was first deported, she was deported. She didn't try to fight the deportation like he did. Uh, and I think another official similarly was deported. In that interview, I just want to note this. if you, if you, you, It's online, you can find it and read it. But what you see is the interviewer from time to time pauses the interview and leaves and appears, to my mind anyway, to be clearly going and talking to other people and, and sounding out what their views are and getting decisions. I would. I wonder whether he was being told what to do. Well, how up, high up the chain is it going to? Do you think? Well, I, secretary. I mean, it's pretty early in the morning. That's true, but it's the number one tennis player in the world. One suspects they had writing instructions so that Djokovic is coming in. He's not vaxxed. You know he's coming in. Bounce him, right? Because you don't need the, the secretary gives that instruction. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to put. So, somewhere an interesting question. It's an interesting question. Yeah. I don't know whether that... Because would they have wanted to avoid this if they could have? Like, if they knew that he was coming and they knew that they were going to not allow him in, I just wonder whether they would have sought to avoid the whole situation. I mean, Though it, it has played to their benefit on one analysis, but I wonder whether it's more of a screw-up. It might have been a screw-up. It might have been actually somebody honestly asked this guy and that led to this whole thing and then they've gone, oh, it's the world number one yeah. tennis player. So I don't know. I don't, I don't want to suggest it. <laughs> it's hard to believe that they wouldn't have made contact with someone not working in the Tullamore Airport. Yeah, but it feels, does feel like a screw up because the delay, in which we'll get to, the uh, official announcement from the, from the minister, decision from the minister, it wasn't the next day. It wasn't the day after. You know, I mean, obviously it couldn't have been, but it wasn't after the 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 tribunal decision. So there's two decisions, right? There's the decision at the airport to cancel his visa. Yes. Then there's a later decision, which is a personal decision by the minister to again cancel his visa. Yes. Yeah. So but sort of it's quite two. delayed. So if it's a stitch up, you'd think they would. Be- oh no. I, yeah. I I don't know that that's right. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. But. I, after, that was effectively after they'd lost. Yeah, they, they, yes. They, they hadn't lost because they conceded, but they'd lost in... Oh, technicality, in yeah. The, is it the magistrates? No, it's the judge of the... Yeah, they used to be magistrates. They, right. But now they're federal family and should we get promoted, judges. Should we get into the reasons behind the uh, Djokovic's uh, first uh, run, and, yeah. run at the at, at administrative yeah. success? So, so he has his visa cancelled at the border... He lawyers up. He goes... But hang on. Uh, we're still at the airport here. What happens? Yeah, so he's at the airport. He's taken into immigration detention. Yes. Which is required to happen. I think ultimately 
he spends that initial period at a hotel in Melbourne. Mm. Mm. And given access to a phone. Yeah. Makes an urgent application to the Federal Circuit Court. I think it's now known as the Family and Federal Circuit yes. Court or something. Yeah, I read that it is. Yeah. yeah. He, he makes an argument through his lawyers that's heard fairly quickly. I think it's heard within a sort of day or two mm. that the decision to cancel the visa should be set aside because it was unreasonable which was argued as unreasonableness in the sense of the procedure adopted was so unreasonable because he was deprived of procedural fairness that it should be set aside on the basis of unreasonableness. And he got a sort of interim... He got got interim relief, which I think might have let him out for a period during that. I think it was he... I don't know. I think during the hearing, or at least in the lead-up to it... um, he was being held at that hotel where as, as did I read somewhere that people have been in that hotel for like yes. the better part of a decade? Yes. So people who are detained in that hotel have been detained by the Australian government for up to nine years, not totally in that not in that hotel for yeah. that period. Okay. Often in Nauru or Manus Island in earlier times then brought to Australia under some of the medical evacuations that occurred mm. oh. when um, asylum seekers and refugees, because some of the people being detained have had their applications determined and are refugees. Uh, and so they were brought to Australia, as I understand it, in those circumstances where their health was so compromised in Nauru or Manus Island that they had to be brought to Australia. Um, but they continue to be detained here. Yeah, what? So in a room and seal the door? Effectively, indefinitely. Some of them are, you know, the windows have been sealed up. They can't get any fresh air. Oh, Um, my God. The thing I thought was interesting about all the coverage of that was there's people in immigration detention in Christmas Island who effectively, you know, geographically might be in another country. It's full of the character cancellation people, so it's effectively a maximum security prison. And I just, I mean, I don't know anything about this hotel and what this hotel's like, but I was just, it was being talked about in the international press as some sort of gulag. Mm. And, yeah, there's other parts of our immigration detention system, I suspect, that are a lot worse than a hotel in Melbourne. But yeah. anyway, that's I don't know. I think being in a hotel room where you're confined to that, it's pretty solitary. Yeah, there's no outdoors, is there? No. But it's a form of community detention, isn't it? I don't think so. Are you actually locked in your room? I think there are very strict rules in terms of when you're allowed to go out at all and, like, maybe get permission to have a cigarette occasionally and things like that. Mm, I think I'd rather be there than on Christmas Island. Anyway. So, he... Anyway, we're comparing sort of two forms of torture, really. Yeah, nine years is more than a manslaughter sentence in many circumstances. So, he... Winds up in front of a federal court, federal circuit court judge. Um, I don't know. I, I watched part of the hearing. I didn't watch all of it. But to me, and I don't practice in the area, it seemed fairly evident that the Commonwealth is on pretty shaky ground. Mm. They'd asked for the matter to be adjourned a few days. The judge had said no. Um, and it became fairly... It was certainly apparent halfway through the hearing that the Commonwealth was in trouble. Um, and at one point they asked for some time to get some instructions and they dropped their defence of it. Through the towel in. Uh, yeah, through the towel in, which means rather unfortunately that we don't get a judgment about 
because I was quite looking forward to reading that judgment. Mm. Um, Do you think that's sometimes a tactic that a party might use to have consent orders to avoid a judgment on a particular topic, especially in circumstances where that party has the capacity to then get their own remedy in another way, i.e. the minister makes the personal decision? Could definitely be that. It's pretty rare in my experience in immigration matters to get consent orders. Mm. Like I've done one matter over five years where they, and this was pre-hearing, where they agreed to consent orders. And it's funny because in the Supreme Court, once you lodge, like in New South Wales, if you lodge an appeal or judicial review proceedings, isn't there sort of a rule that you get a judgment? Yep. Isn't there a rule about when you can, when consent orders will operate? Yes, generally yeah. speaking, if you're going for what used to be the old prerogative writs, you will get a judgment, get even, judgment. If it's by cons- thought, even if it's yeah. by consent completely. And I don't know whether, I mean, the Federal Circuit Court is not a superior court of inherent jurisdiction. I don't know whether yeah. that's a sort of material difference. I don't know. Uh, but um, one of the things that, that was argued in that court had to do with the application of, or the conflation, without going into the details of the Migration Act that are a bit boring, um, they conflated the test. Uh, and I just wondered whether that was a pro forma error that they'd made and that's a pro forma error that they've made in every case where they've kicked someone out mm, and they just problem. a systemic so mm. for the for the ministerial discretion later, at a later date no 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 that beforehand uh-huh. I think I, I've got a I don't know that either the form that they use the literal form mm. they fill out and tick boxes on or the words that they use is indicative of a system of an ongoing problem they've been well the approach that they've taken in kicking people out. I tell you at why that actually makes a lot of sense to me because these decisions are never challenged because when you're when you're in that pre-immigration clearance kind of void, mm. you I don't think you have standing to challenge the decision, and I don't think I think there's all sorts of different sort of jurisdictional um, and legality issues, which mean that these decisions are never challenged because people are deported immediately. And it was only because of his recourse in terms of getting his lawyers and getting to the court straight away. Yeah, this is a pretty unusual case in that sense. Yeah. So if, if this is this untested area, there could well be some kind of broad error going on that they wanted to sort of cover up. Mm. Mm. You see it in other contexts. I remember doing a case where the police were reading out... The police wanted to take my client's DNA in a criminal case. He was a suspect for certain criminal conduct and the police were reading from a form, kind of reading out his rights and reading out, you know, the different things that they had said to him, the questions they had to ask him and so on. And they got to this point where they read out to him that there were basically two options. Either he could agree to put a swab in his mouth and provide some spit or um, if he didn't agree to doing that a police officer would come into the room and forcefully pull out his hair and that was a scenario that operated under the particular rules that existed under an earlier version of the legislation, the Crimes Forensic Procedures Act, which was pretty quickly changed because it raises this real problem of people thinking, well, either I'm going to consent 
in inverted commas, to this by providing the swab or someone's going to come and assault me and rip my hair out. And it hurts having your hair pulled out, you know, when you get the little white things on the end. <laughs> but it's also assault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So we made an application. I mean, there were a whole range of different reasons that what the police did in this particular case involved um, wrongful conduct by the police, but this was one of them. And we ran this case on the basis that it was part of the reason why it should be excluded from evidence was that there was a systemic issue that this change in the legislation had happened seven years ago or something and the police at Dubbo were still reading out this whole form Mm. to people and there was a pattern of misconduct that must have been occurring and that was relevant to the discretion under Section 138 of the Evidence Act. So it's kind of interesting when you have these sort of decision makers or operators that are just actually at the end of the day not applying their own minds. And it's never being reviewed. They're just reading yeah. out forms and it's not being reviewed. Yeah. Most cases are just going through the keeper. Mm. It's interesting because migration is probably one of the most sort of litigated areas. But like those sort of decisions, this particular decision is sort of under litigated because of its Well, how often is nature. it... Sorry to cut you off. How often do you believe it is updated legislatively? What? My, the Migration Act. Oh, it's updated all the time. Um, As in amended? And, yes. Yeah, yeah, like it has amendments all the time, right? Okay. But this type of decision being a decision to cancel a visa for a person that's arrived but hasn't been immigration cleared, it's very hard for people to challenge because most people go straight away. They're just deported, so they have no interest in challenging it. And, yeah, there's. I'm not sure exactly what the jurisdictional hurdle is, but there's a particular reason why these decisions are never litigated that's distinct from people having been thrown out. Hi, it's Ali Batterson here. The Whigs have asked me to drop a quick voice note to clarify a couple of issues. First, why cancellation decisions made at the airport under the Migration Act, as happened to world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic, or maybe not number one anymore, are so rarely litigated. In my experience, there are two main reasons. One, such decisions are not reviewable in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is the body that can review and overturn many other decisions under the Act. There is simply no statutory provision giving the AAT jurisdiction, and tribunals are creatures of statute with only the jurisdiction Parliament gives them. These decisions are reviewable in the Federal Circuit Court or the Federal Court, depending on the circumstances, but that is timely and costly. Second, practical obstacles prevent such persons accessing the federal courts. They are generally turned around very quickly, and if not immediately turned around, they're then taken into immigration detention, and they're housed in special parts of detention centres with no easy access to lawyers. So there's no right to liberty in Australia, so they're taken into detention, and there's no right to legal representation. So a lawyer's not going to be provided them to, to them to assist with their detention or visa cancellation. So I definitely agree that this lack of scrutiny creates a context where improper behaviour, such as that occurred in respect of Djokovic, likely goes unchecked and occurs quite frequently. The second issue the Whigs have asked that I address is the conditions inside the Park Hotel, where Djokovic was housed whilst in immigration detention. I have clients there, and so I can share some insights based on their experience and my understanding of what's going on. The Park Hotel is definitely not just being detained in the community in some nice plush hotel. 
It is a secure facility occupying just two floors of the hotel. It has one balcony, which is used by smokers and you know, if you don't smoke, you don't really go to that balcony. So there's no fresh air. There's no freedom of movement. And, and of course, the people inside, the refugees, who have no character issues or concerns because they've been brought to Australia, so they're already security cleared, they're not free to leave. It is not a pleasant place at all. And you're detained with a group of other incredibly mentally unwell people. I have clients, however, who prefer the Park Hotel to other detention facilities such as Christmas Island where the Bilawea family was housed because the Park Hotel generally does not house people with um, character concerns or with criminal records, many of whom have been convicted with serious offences and for the ones who aren't refugees have little incentive to behave well because their removal is pending and they'll never be allowed back into Australia. Generally speaking, Australian detention centres are violent places and gangs do operate within them. Now, this is not a slur on, on people in immigration detention. There are amazing and good people in there, but there are elements that make it violent and dangerous. In, in, in fact, there are over 60 serious assaults in the immigration detention prison network every month. That's two a day. The Park Hotel itself differs in that it almost exclusively holds medical evacuees from the Pacific Solution. Terrible name. They should have ScoMo for marketing could have come up with something better than that, but it holds people from Nauru and PNG. And thanks to the Whigs for asking me to contribute. That was Alison Batterson, lawyer and founder of Human Rights for All, an Australian pro bono human rights law firm dedicated to assisting asylum seekers, refugees and the stateless in their fight for freedom and liberty. If you want to support the great work of Alison Batterson and her NGO Human Rights for All, who represent detained asylum seekers, refugees and stateless persons in Australia, including some detained at the Park Hotel in Melbourne, you can donate at www.hr4a.com.au. That's hr 4 a.com.au. Alison was solicitor for AJL20 and was interviewed by Stephen Lawrence on the Wigs about that case in episode four of season three. Now back to the Wigs. Okay, so he's one in court. He's training again, I suppose. Is he, they let him out? Yeah, they did, and he hit yeah. the court. Yep. Um, and I think there's a photograph of him with his lawyers on centre court. Yeah, nice. After the first win. Yeah. Hmm. Um, a bit premature. And the minister... For immigration is reported to say something like, or I think the Prime Minister says of him, he's put himself in lockup to think about this matter. No, no, yeah, but prior to that, the Prime Minister used uh, the first uh, instance visa cancellation at the airport, which I should have brought up at the time, as an opportunity to tweet out for the first time in apparently three months since he's used his account. Rules are rules. Djokovic didn't follow the rules. This is me paraphrasing. Uh, he has to go rules or rules. Words yeah. to that effect. Yeah. Um, so, essentially, does that element play into this as well? I mean, obviously, it was a highly politicised case in the first place, but does the expectation that he's going to get kicked out through ministerial intervention play into uh, Novak and his legal team's mind when he's won in, in this first instance. I don't know, but I know the lawyer for the minister at the conclusion of the first hearing said publicly on the record the minister will consider whether to exercise his personal power yes, I remember under 133C, I think it is. So they were well and truly 
uh, on notice that that might happen. But he had had his visa restored, so he was free to be in the community. Okay, sure. But obviously on notice that he might lose the visa. Mm. And then there was, what, like four to five days of sort of media and public pressure and discussion about it. Yes. And then um, ultimately the minister makes a decision, um, a second decision to cancel the visa. Yeah. So did he go through the process? Did he actually sit down and think about, look at all the evidence that was put in front of him, think about it, come to a view and then make a decision or did he make a decision and then marshal the evidence and the facts around it and then write up a pretty detailed and it wasn't bound to give reasons but he did give reasons in this matter um normally or generally or often there's a there's a duty to give reasons but the migration act for this particular power absolves him of that need but he did and they're discussed in the in which we'll come to in a minute the, the federal full court of the federal court judgment on it um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm so cynical that I often think that decisions are made and then administrative law principles are adhered to so that a court can be told that they have been. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting, I mean, what occurred to me as I was reading uh, the reasons for decision, and you see this a lot um, in migration decisions, some incredibly generous findings of fact got made. Mm. So there was an assumption that he was entitled to a, to a medical exemption. All sorts of things were found in his favour and then ultimately the visas cancelled on the basis that he could generate anti-vaccination sentiment if he's allowed to stay in Australia. And we'll come to the reasons in a moment. But, yeah, I mean, it looked to me like they were trying to square away the factual controversies so that you can then act to cancel the visa on the most non-contentious basis mm. to minimise the prospects of successful challenge. Because as soon as there's factual controversies that you found against him, you increase the prospects of judicial review grounds because there'll be arguments about have you properly engaged with the factual matters? Is there unreasonable fact-finding? And you see this a lot in these decisions, which are not written by the ministers, by the way. They're written by bureaucrats. Mm, of course. And they draft them. The minister signs them. You never really know, except in the very occasional case where the minister is put in the witness box. Um, you never really know how much they've really engaged. You just imagine maybe they're sitting there in question time making 20 or 30 decisions in five minutes. Mm. Um, that all came to my mind when I was reading the reasons. I suspect they bore very little relation to Alex Hawke's actual thinking processes. Mm, so some of the factual findings that were very much in Djokovic's favour, so, for example, he was required to submit this thing called an Australian Travel Declaration, which has a number of different questions that you have to answer, including have you travelled anywhere else within the last 14 days before arriving in Australia from your destination. And Djokovic's answer on that question was no, but pretty quickly evidence turned up after the first judge's decision that he'd been in Spain within the two weeks before arriving in Australia. And the minister basically said, look, I accept what Djokovic says about his agent making a, a mistake on that questionnaire and that he wasn't deliberate, deliberately misleading or dishonest to the Australian authorities. We accept that he has had COVID. 
um, and we accept that he has a medical exemption, even though people were postulating this idea that he might have concocted the COVID experience so as to be able to avoid vaccination. And the transmission was very low. Mm. The risk of transmission from him of the virus was very low, was also found. Mm. But the, the reason he was kicked out is that you, all of us, are so stupid that if a world number one isn't vaccinated and wins, or that no, no, and wins is an exaggeration, but plays tennis, um, you we are so stupid that we might be tempted not to get vaccinated. I mean, as soon as he left, I started sort of looking to uh, make an appointment for the booster. That's well, mm. indeed. N equals one, so obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so we should probably talk about the provisions. So as we all understand, uh, Alex Hawke then cancels the visa uh, mm. for the second time. He uses Section 133C of the Migration Act, which says relevantly, the minister may cancel a visa held by a person if the minister is satisfied that a ground for cancelling the visa under Section 116 exists. So Section 116, um, in a relevant sense, is where the presence of a visa holder in Australia is or may be or would or might be a risk to the health, safety or good order of the Australian community or a segment of the Australian community. So you've got to be satisfied as to that and health, safety um, and good order were the reason that the minister was ultimately satisfied that the visa should be cancelled under 116 or could be cancelled under 116. And then lastly, in terms of this 133C power, the minister has to be has to be satisfied it's in the public interest to cancel the visa. The significance of the, 113, of the 133C power is you don't have to um, accord procedural fairness. It's a personal ministerial decision so you can't merit review it, so you can't go to the AAT or anything like that. Alex Hawke cancelled Djokovic's visa on the basis that, A, he was satisfied that his presence was a threat to health, safety and good order of the Australian community, and he was satisfied that it was in the public interest. In terms of this health and good order issue, yeah, as Manny said, the main reason, there was some other aspects to it, but the predominant reason was that he was satisfied that if Djokovic did not have his visa cancelled, that he would become, and this is a paraphrase from the lawyers, a talisman for anti-vaccination sentiment mm. um, in Australia. And that was uh, the reason for the health conclusion. Um, in terms of that health issue, though, he also had some regard to the fact that, quote... He has in the past shown an apparent disregard for the need to isolate, and that's a reference to this suggestion that he'd had COVID in Serbia and had not isolated. And I think Djokovic um, had admitted that he'd done that. Mm, he admitted that he did a media interview. Yeah, he did, yeah. Whilst he had COVID. Yeah. And the minister said, given Djokovic's high-profile status and position as a role model, his ongoing presence in Australia may foster similar disregard for the precautionary requirements. So it could become a talisman for anti-vax, but could also encourage people not to comply with the public health orders. Um, in terms of order, so the idea of a person being a threat to public order, which is a separate ground to health, uh, the Minister was satisfied that 
quote, I consider the behaviour by influential persons and role models which demonstrate a failure to comply with or a disregard of public health measures has the potential to undermine the efficacy and consistency of the Australian government and state, state government's management of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so again, quite sort of closely related. Um, so it's, it, it, I mean, it's it, what he's admitting is that he was tipped out for a propaganda purpose. Right. So is this, that, that's, it's, is it's a frank admission of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is, this, is this it? So the minister imputes to Djokovic an opinion that is anti-vaccination. Mm. And I say impute because there was the evidence that was available was that in April 2020, which was a time when vaccines for COVID didn't exist, Djokovic had said he was, quote, opposed to vaccination. And then he had subsequently said that he was, quote, no expert and would, quote, keep an open mind, but wanted to, quote, have an option to choose what's best for my body. And that was, I think, um, about the limit of the evidence. There was another, I think, comment that he'd said he wouldn't want to be forced by someone to take a vaccine. Um the minister said, look, I don't know what Mr Djokovic's opinion about vaccination is now and I haven't asked him. But so is this is this the upshot of it? The minister imputes an opinion to Mr Djokovic, then forms the view that because he is this sports hero or big figure, that he might cause other people to have and express that same opinion that is imputed to Mr Djokovic and therefore he should be refused entry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is quite extraordinary. He also says that he sort of qualifies that by saying, look, the real issue is the impact on the Australian community in the sense that it doesn't matter whether he actually holds those views or not. If he's perceived to hold those views by the Australian community, that's enough. Okay, And again, sure. that's one so of these sort of worst generous factual findings that are quite... quite I don't think that quite, saves it. Quite disingenuous. So these sorts of powers, I don't know whether this power, but this 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 sort of thing has happened before. There was one of those pick-up artist guys yeah. from America mm. who was denied entry. Snoop Dogg? Snoop Dogg yeah. was denied entry. Same, um, similar or Snoop Lion, I don't want to misname him. Mm. Um there's a few other people along those lines and there was talk of, you know, free speech and so on at the time when that happened. But, of course, you know, we were ever ultimately the polity was fine with it. But now we're not even talking about speech. Now it's just like, look, your presence... Perception is, of speech. The, mm. the perception of you is such and the Australian community or segments of the Australian community are so weak mm. that they won't be able to resist your glowing influence over them. And what's interesting is it's not even I mean that is the anti-vax position is I get I should shouldn't be forced to do some take a vaccine. That is now defined as an anti-vax position uh. I suppose. I mean it's a pretty extraordinary reason to give for expelling the number one tennis player in the world from this big competition when we're over 95% vaccinated. Well, he didn't base it on an actual threat to any health. 
They might I know, not take boosters. But in terms of considering anti-vaccination sentiment, yeah, we are so vaccinated. Have we passed that? Yeah. You yeah, know, know, how know, high did they really expect ongoing, us to get? It's, it seems that it's going to be this ongoing process where we're all going to have to be vaccinated and revaccinated, right? So I guess in the minister's kind of Still. reasoning... You know, if you view it in some long-term sense, maybe it's more precarious than it might seem, and it rests on community support, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Well, um, I think Gabe's question, why did they deny him a visa, is a very insightful one because yeah. I don't know that the reasons given were really <laughs> genuine. So imagine the world's leading vaccination expert or if they were. forms the view that people shouldn't get vaccinated. And f- tries to fly into Australia to give a speech about that. I mean, it's. Are so we going to deny his entry? Well, or that's, her entry? Yeah. I mean, it's so right? 19th century, isn't it? In the sense, or 20th century, in the sense that I remember cases where, like, these right wing American people or whatever who want to come sort of 20, 30 years ago or something. And there's this spectre of them, like, touring the community halls of regional New South Wales and stoking up skinheads or something. This is the KKK, yeah. Grand Wizards yeah. attempt. Where the, where the person's physical presence gives them the capacity to contact and reach all these people and perhaps incite actual violence. But this is 2022. Like, this guy has got Facebook, presumably Twitter, etc. Mm. We're all on the internet. He can communicate with anyone he wants at any time. And he hasn't tried to. And he hasn't That's really right. tried he to. He hasn't yeah. tried to spruik anti-vaccination right. So the idea that he deporting him to- is going to impact on that at all. Either well, way, I just find to be completely nebulous. It really gives that segment of the community that is against vaccination and is conspiracy-minded... It fuels the idea that the government's just using COVID as an excuse to do what it wants, mm. right? And that 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 sort of and I'm not saying that's what they were doing, mm. but that is the sort of thing that's that would well be thought. And I think that was argued in front of the full court of the federal court. Mm. Yeah, well, part so- of the argument was that the minister failed to take into account the counter proposition, which is that deporting Djokovic would actually more likely contribute to a rise in anti-vaccination sentiment. So before we get on to that, just Manny, on your point about, you know, propaganda and, you know, this could be used to stop a doctor at the border or whatever. So the, the full court said at 84, which I thought was really interesting, even though it's sort of annoying... They said, there is a question not explored in argument as to the extent to which one can or should characterise lawful, even if robust, rallies and protests in the free expression of political or social views as a threat to good order. In the absence of argument or of it being an issue, we do not comment any further on this. Our common recent experience does, however, demonstrate that some rallies and demonstrations concerning COVID-19 are measures to limit movement and activity of the public have involved some violent activity and have been the occasion for the spreading of the disease or at least that is open to be inferred. So that's interesting in the sense of talking about where they're having reference to the prospect of protests and rallies in terms of health and good order. They're acknowledging there's this potential, I suppose, human rights issue, maybe a political communication issue, but they, you know, say that it wasn't argued and they're not going to consider it further. But isn't there a more broader point which is the whole premise of this cancellation decision is the prospect of people responding to his communication or the communication of others that is encouraged by his presence that has nothing to do with rallies or protests 
it's just thoughts and people expressing thoughts about vaccination and so forth. Yeah. People having thoughts in their minds and then maybe or maybe not getting vaccinated as a result. Yeah, yeah. even by reference to health. Basis. Even yeah. by reference to health, let alone good order, can you legitimately construe those statutory provisions to for that to be a basis for cancellation? It just seems so... Does the government? Yeah, I mean, all it is is saying we might lose control over people's minds. Yeah, on one level, that's Mm. that's what's being said. As the only non-lawyer in the room, I should put some historical context on this episode in case it gets listened to in a decade's time from now that we are four months out from a federal election and Mm. presumably the idea of kicking out an anti-vaxxer from the country polled incredibly well at the time the immigration minister has made the decision. And I think it was politically seen as a win for the Prime Minister who's in desperate need of one. Is that why it took so many days to make the decision? That That is my speculative belief. I mean, I just... I think it's worth noting that this ended up in front of the full court of the federal court. It wouldn't ordinarily have gone back in front of a... What are the magistrates So it's transferred from... Yeah, so it started in the federal circuit court. Yep. Was then transferred to uh, the federal court, I think, by consent. There's a judgment on it. By consent, but there's a judgment yeah. on it. Um, yeah. And then, and it was then they on convened the a full court, Yeah, which Djokovic was in favour of. And the minister opposed, which I thought was interesting. Interesting. Yeah, they seemed to... don't know what they ultimately did, but in that first directions hearing, they were... Yeah, they opposed it on the basis that it would deprive them of appeal rights, which is pretty spurious in the sense that you have three judges, so that's, yeah. that's what you might ultimately get anyway. Mm-hmm. So we should talk a bit about the grounds that he challenged the second decision. Um, The full court dealt with them in reverse order, so maybe that's what we'll do. So the first ground was not open to make a finding concerning Mr Djokovic's quote, well-known stance on vaccination and similarly express findings. So they are arguing that there was no evidence uh, for the minister to make a conclusion that he had a well-known stance that's anti-vaccination. And the full court said, no, there was clearly enough material to, uh, to infer that. Ground two was, again, a no evidence ground, saying that it was not open to find that the presence of Djokovic in Australia is or may be a risk to the health or good order of the Australian community. Now, what they said about that was... Um, Quote, however, it was open to infer that it was perceived by the public that Mr Djokovic was not in favour of vaccinations. It was known or at least perceived by the public that he had chosen not to be vaccinated. There was material in attachment H before the minister and to which he referred in the reasons that anti-vaccination groups had portrayed Mr Djokovic as a hero and an icon of freedom of choice in relation to being vaccinated. Um, then... They say, the evidence concerning the support or galvanising of the former group concerned the circumstance of the cancellation of Mr Djokovic's visa uh, by the delegate of the Minister for Home Affairs rather than Mr Djokovic's views regarding vaccination. Nevertheless, the evidence did display an affinity of those groups with his, his views. And then this is probably the more interesting part. The possible influence on the second group comes from common sense and human experience. An iconic world tennis star may influence people of all ages, young or old, but perhaps especially the young and the impressionable to emulate him. It's not fanciful. It does not need evidence. It is the recognition of human behaviour from a modest familiarity with human experience. Even if Mr Djokovic did not win the Australian Open, the capacity of his presence in Australia playing tennis to encourage those who would emulate or wish to be like him is a rational foundation for the view that he might foster anti-vaccination sentiment. I mean, this is a case where there's a line between merit and legality. 
it's not the judges saying those things. They're saying that it was open to the minister to think that. But these things involve very sort of fine lines. And I think you could... I certainly find that so completely unconvincing Mm. as to think that it's an unreasonable decision by the minister. But, you know, there's grey lines here. And then it says, "Uh, the above considerations can be seen to underpin not only the state of satisfaction about health, but also good order and the public interest, because the minister had to be satisfied that it was in the public interest to cancel the visa, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Then they say, there is also the additional consideration of rallies and protests. Whilst it can be accepted the evidence of those rallies and protests involving sentiment for Mr Djokovic arose at the time of the cancellation of his visa by the delegate, it was not irrational to infer that Mr Djokovic's presence may be taken up by such groups in the future in support of their views. So that was some additional support for the argument. Uh, it was not irrational for the minister to be concerned that the asserted support of some anti-vaccination groups for Mr Djokovic's apparent position on vaccination may encourage rallies and protests that may lead to heightened community transmission. Um, and then they refer as well to the material about disregard. So they basically find that there was a basis to find that um, he was such a threat to health um, mm. and public order. The more sort of interesting ground, I think, was ground three or ground one um, as pleaded. Just before you go there, Stevie, yep. I watched quite a few hours of the hearing and there was a moment where one of the judges said to counsel, isn't the minister entitled to use his common sense yeah. on this? He's it's quite ominous, that part, wasn't it? I, I thought that the government's one <laughs> when I heard that question. Um, so ground three or ground one was this argument that basically it was unreasonable to reach a state of satisfaction that he needed to have his visa cancelled because to not do so would encourage anti-vaccination sentiment without expressly uh, engaging with what would cancelling the visa do. So this is the counterfactual Yeah, the counterfactual, yeah. So basically they argued that Sure, you could, within the parameters of reasonable decision-making, conclude that he'll become this talisman and therefore it's in the public interest to cancel, but you can't reach that conclusion in a reasonable way unless you consider the counterfactual. What impact will cancelling the visa have on him becoming such a talisman? And, you know, this is this sort of interesting ground of review that, you know, presses up against the border between merit and legality and it kind of falls in this category of arguments about what does it mean to consider um, and what is the sort of, you know, breadth of this unreasonableness idea. Like, can it be so unreasonable not to consider a particular issue that the decision um, is vitiated because of that? It's not a rubber stamp. No. So what they said about that was kind of framed by reference to the words of the statute, but also some other stuff. So they said, uh, the ground should be dismissed. It was not necessary for the minister to consider and weigh in the balance the two binary choices contended for by Mr Djokovic. The power to cancel relied upon by the minister in this case arose once he was satisfied that the presence of the visa holder in Australia may be a risk to the health, safety or good order of the Australian Mm. community. The words of the statute direct attention to the, quote, presence of the visa holder in Australia. No statutory obligation arose to consider what risks may arise if the holder were removed from 
or not present in Australia. The provision cannot be interpreted as requiring the Minister to examine the consequences of cancellation by way of a counterfactual, uh, directed as it is to the considerations of risk by reference to presence. Um, so is the public interest test that was also required to be considered tied to presence? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, there okay, was no so consideration both, of the both consequences parts of removal. Are yeah. Tied to presence. Yeah. yeah, okay. But I mean, it's just the, the insanity of saying, of not thinking about that when you're thinking about him being a talisman. I just, it seems too cute a point to me. You know? Yeah. Um, and they went on to sort of say in the alternative, in any event, the minister was, because he recognised it in his reasons, aware of the fact that unrest in the community occurred following the decision of the Minister for Home Affairs to cancel Mr Djokovic's visa. So they're sort of saying that implicitly he was aware mm. of or was turning his mind to the consequences or the outcome if he cancelled because it was sort of evidenced in similar circumstances before him. Um and then they say, oh, they do say this. Although the minister did not weigh in the balance, the binary choices contended for by Mr. Djokovic. So this is about exercising the discretion. It can be taken that he was aware of any number of different consequences that might ensue if the visa were cancelled, including unrest, but that having noted each of those matters referred to, the ministry is to be taken as not having regarded them as something that within the exercise of his discretion he regarded as necessary to weigh in the balance of things. You know, I thought this case could have gone the other way. Like, people were asking me on the day, oh, how do you reckon he's going to go? And I'm like, oh, I think he's going to lose. But, mm. you know, you never sort of know. These things are quite grey. They're quite evaluative. But reading it, the decision's sort of worse than it immediately struck me when I read it again. Um, I mean, it, it's an I, unusual just, I, I, just, I just think, keep thinking that admin law's... Mm. Because I, I, the judgment with, with unfeigned respect makes complete sense to me, but that's the problem. Yeah, you know that that you can make these. Either we we should just permit decision makers to make these decisions and not go through, go the through circus. this circus mm. and not have any review. Yeah, or if mm. we're going to have a review, we should have. So, I don't know if merits review is always right, but something better mm. than this because it almost brings the court into disrepute to have it say as it was bound to, in my view, what it did. Mm. Mm. There is a silver lining in all this, though, and that is that uh, there's some private disputes going on in the context of this conversation. Neil Young versus another podcaster, Joe Rogan. Who will win? Uh, you know, Neil Young accuses Joe Rogan of sprouting anti-vax sentiment amongst his uh, show listeners. Subsequently removes his uh, catalogue from Spotify, who has a stake in Joe Rogan's show. But in co- in that context, hot off the press, while we go to air tonight, I'm getting a notification on my phone. YouTube have suspended the account of Dan Bongino, who's a far-right, uh, a supposedly far-right podcaster. I have never listened to his show, but I do know that he consistently beats us in the news commentary uh, ratings. So that's a that's a victory for the Whigs. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. One I was wondering us. where you were going with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Long-winded. <laughs> Long-winded. But if censorship tells us anything, it's that we should be number one. So get the f*** out of our way. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back to The Wigs, ladies and gentlemen. We are joined for the first time in person in the studio. We have a guest, uh, and let me introduce that right now, Philip Bolton, SC. Thank you very much for joining us in person in studio on The Wigs. Love it to have you here. My pleasure. Fantastic. Lovely to be here. Phil, it's really good to have you on The Wigs. We're all huge fans. Oh, get out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Just wanted to get that out of the way straight up. So we've just talked about uh, the Djokovic case. What are your sort of views about that case? Well... Um, uh, firstly, it shows how ridiculously unfair Border Force were when they interviewed him and how the whole thing was rightly overturned in the Federal Circuit Court. And secondly, the breadth of the discretion of the Minister to exclude somebody from Australia in circumstances where actually once he got here... He was extraordinarily careful not to uh, give rise to anti-vax sentiment, but was still excluded on that basis. Remarkable. Yeah, and the limits of judicial review, I guess, as a you know mechanism to achieve substantive justice. Absolutely, mm. uh, and it was clear enough by watching the the YouTube broadcast that, despite the obvious substantive merits of the argument that were advanced for Mr Djokovic, it wasn't really going to get anywhere. Yeah, It's really interesting, isn't it, in the sense that those grounds in the full court were right at the boundary of merit and legality and ultimately failed because they were on one side rather than the other. But the process of putting them sort of informed the community about the substantive merits. So the whole idea of the YouTube <coughs> broadcast, I think, will be a enduring legacy Uh, I have absolute certain uh, knowledge that this is not going to be the last YouTube broadcast from the federal court Uh, and I think all courts now should give serious consideration to uh, allowing that sort of broad access to their deliberations and the the COVID-19 proceedings in the Supreme Court that have been streamed have attracted tens of thousands of viewers. Yeah, to directions hearings. They've had tens of thousands of viewers for like just quick directions hearings, let alone the substantive ones. It's fantastic. Do you think people should be able to... Oh, sorry, Stevie. Phil, you're forgetting about Manny and his YouTube appearance in the Black Lives Matter case. I was going to say. Which... um, (laughs) I had no idea. There was about, I think, somewhere between five and 10,000 people watching that. And, and we then, thought that was huge. Yeah, and nowadays 90,000 for the, for the yeah, Vax yeah, ones here. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that people should be able to watch them after the fact or only live? No, I think both. Uh, I think the uh, YouTube concept was really good. The other good thing the federal court does is for, their, for important cases, they put all of or many of the documents online so you can yeah. go and read them. Yeah, that, that sort of technology needs to be much more across the board. Mm. The High court does it, federal court does it. It's expensive, though, mm. and yet it's obviously uh, giving people confidence in the whole system if they choose to engage with it. Well, in two ways, right? Because, first of all, people can directly observe it what's going on but secondly it gives much greater access to journalists to be able to then report on it synthesize it analyze it and provide reporting for people to understand what's going on yeah so the tweeting of the Djokovic 
full court hearing was fantastic. Uh, indeed, there were circles of tweeters and my circle of tweeting was pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be all these concerns about, um, you know, like American court TV and stuff and all these concerns that it would, le- it would, that it would impact on the nature of advocacy particularly. People would start to play to the cameras and so forth. I mean, that doesn't seem to be evidence in this slow, very slow, gradual movement towards this, does it? Oh, well, I'm guilty of being one of those advocates. I've always resisted uh, the idea of cameras in the courtrooms Mm. where I appear. Um, (laughs) But I think there is a very different approach to advocacy in criminal courts on the one hand, as opposed to the sorts of advocacy that we saw in Djokovic. That's true, isn't it? It's very different to broadcasting a sort of criminal trial, isn't it, where you've got a jury, for example? Yeah, I have no doubt that should the uh, broadcast of jury trials where people are charged with serious offences should become a regular feature, then there will be an extra dynamic in the courtroom about uh, how the jury will reach their verdicts. So your view would be reserve it for, what, appellate and public interest, you know, those sort of categories? That's the way I see it. And, yeah. and sentencing proceedings is quite different. But if there's a chance of impacting on the jury through extraneous ways of uh, influence, then maybe there ought to be some careful thought before that happens Mm. so yeah we're obviously here to talk about the late and great ian barker uh so why don't we just kick off with you explaining how you came to know ian well i knew ian because i read the papers Uh, i was a fan of his as a young lawyer uh before i went to the bar i was uh, a keen follower of ian barker he was what a barrister was meant to be so far as I was concerned Uh, in later years I had the good fortune to be in the same chambers as him briefly but then over the years worked with him on a couple of cases and we worked together a lot uh, on policy issues for the law council basically so Hmm. he's a great great fellow actually every generation you get barristers that are top of the field that people know about that aren't just people that are regarded highly in the profession so in my generation Barker was it and perhaps Chester Porter Hmm. but definitely Barker Uh, he was the consummate trial advocate criminal trial advocate who could dabble in other areas of the law but was also very comfortable in the Court of Appeal and the Court of Criminal Appeal. Uh, And his career extended for many decades. So a a great hitter. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with you to some degree, and I think a lot would have a positive opinion of you. You were able to talk about how Barker was an influence on you in terms of your practice of the law? Yeah, look, to some extent deliberately, and I think... A larger extent subconsciously I think I sort of modeled myself after Ian Barker 
uh, here's somebody that I thought, well, that's what a barrister should be. Yeah. Uh, he had a really effective way of communicating uh, directly with the tribunal of fact. I was particularly impressed with his ability to cut through nonsense with a jury. He was diff- diffident deliberately. He had a nice low-key approach. There were no uh, large-scale histrionics in court, but a very nice, calm manner, self-deprecating to a fault. He thought how to put a message across in a way that people soaked up. A lot of this, I think, stemmed from his formative years as a lawyer in the Northern Territory, Mm. uh, as probably everybody knows, when he was still a very young man, just married, uh, with kids, small kids. He up stumps from his practice in Katoomba, where he was a solicitor, went and became a lawyer, a solicitor slash barrister in Alice Springs. He and his uh, practice leader were the only lawyers in Central Australia. And quickly, uh, he developed a practice where he was in the Supreme Court in Alice Springs, every sittings for back-to-back trials, many murders, uh, typically for Aboriginal people, where he got miles and miles of experience with juries. Mm. As a defence lawyer? As the defence lawyer. Mm. And... Then he'd write people's wills and he'd uh, work out how to administer estates and get involved in disputes about their company's business. He was a general lawyer, general practice lawyer. Uh, Then eventually, after some years, I think in the 1970s, he up stumps and moved to the big smoke, Darwin. (laughs) 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 And... um, When he went up to Darwin, again, he worked in a firm of lawyers. He became a partner in the firm. Still now, the Northern Territory have a very fused profession so that people Mm. are both solicitors and barristers. And unlike now, there was no independent bar in the Northern Territory, and he maintained his practice. Uh, Eventually, he was appointed QC, when he was still working in that small practice. He was the second person appointed silk in the Northern Territory. And again, his practice was wide and general, but with a substantial amount of defence work for people appearing in criminal trials. Then, so the story goes, I've heard him recount it, over a beer at the Yacht Club in Darwin, uh, Paul Everingham, who was the Chief Minister Mm. of the Northern Territory said we're about to get self-government here you want to be the Solicitor General? He said yeah I'll be the Solicitor General (laughs) (laughs) and um, so he was he was the Solicitor General for the Northern Territory for about four or five years at the time of self-government so he had to go through the whole process of uh, setting up the powers and responsibilities for a Territory Government there was a fight with the Commonwealth about what the Northern Territory would be responsible for. In that role, he had interesting jobs like 
establishing Kakadu National Park and uh, the uh, national park on the Coburg Peninsula that was uh, run by an Aboriginal-dominated trust. So very interesting times for him. Uh, And then in, I think, the early 80s, he came to Sydney. It's always seemed, I don't know, ironic to me that this doyen defence lawyer uh, was actually the person that prosecuted the Chamberlains. Mm. And that's that case, obviously, with the big legacy. It makes more sense now, given his history in the NT and his sort of connections and so forth. But what observations would you make about this seeming irony that, you know, this person who is such a revered defence lawyer was involved, and this is no criticism of him, but was involved in what sort of transpired to be one of the historic miscarriages? Okay, so he's a barrister, and he certainly was a barrister when he was asked to prosecute Lindy Chamberlain and her husband. Uh, He took on the role as the prosecutor um, with the evidence that he had, which we all know now in retrospect was seriously flawed. The uh, forensic evidence was uh, undoubtedly rubbish. He didn't know that. Uh, He didn't uh, peddle that as a deliberate position. It was something that eventually justice was corrected as a result of a Royal Commission and a very intensive um, examination ex post facto of Mm. what was before the jury. Having said all of that, uh, I don't doubt that when he prosecuted Lindy Chamberlain, he had a belief in his brief Mm. and probably a belief in her guilt. And I think, truth be known, he found it difficult to deal with the uh, aftermath of the revelation of the new evidence. But I've heard him interviewed about this. In fact, you can listen to it on the New South Wales Bar Association website where he says, well, you know, I got this material as a result of the Royal Commission... Had it been in my brief at the trial, the result would likely have been different. He wasn't keen to talk about it, though. Mm. I don't think he ever really um, made a point of discussing what he really believed and what he thought about the whole process. I saw that um, Alan Jones, (coughs) um, at one point, said some public things about the case and um, Barker, I don't know if he started legal proceedings, but he certainly threatened them and there was a settlement. Um, so well, It wasn't yeah. just Alan Jones either. There was quite a bit of press uh, that got stuck into him, uh, the Australian newspaper as well. Caroline Overington made serious allegations about his propriety uh, and he stuck on his dig. Hmm. There doesn't seem to be any suggestion in any of the appeal judgments of criticism of him, I noticed. None whatsoever. Yeah. Mm. None whatsoever. Mm. Nor should there be. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Was Barker a political person? Uh, that's a very good, <coughs> very good question. I don't really know if he was a member of a political party. I never asked him. But he was advanced by the 
establishment in the Northern Territory to high office. So he may have been thought of as a safe pair of hands there. In his time in Sydney, I never heard him once talk about anything that was party political. But he had very definite views about policy issues concerning the administration of justice and he was fearless in the way that he advocated the rights of the accused, the rule of law, um, the process of the jury trial and I was very, very much um, supported uh, in the early 2000s when he led public discussion about the newly created and or proposed terror laws. So in response to the uh, Twin Towers disaster, Australia, like other Western democracies, came up with uh, a range of proposals that included new offences where there'd be no requirement for the prosecution to prove any mens rea or mental element, fault element, so uh, absolute liability, uh, reverse onus of proof, uh, where you could be forced to make confessions uh, to ASIO and that evidence could be used against you in evidence. In the end, the draconian laws that were passed were quite moderate compared to the original uh, proposals Mm. and I think we can thank people like Ian Barker for his advocacy on this as then a former president of the Bar Association and a leading lawyer in his own right. Ian Barker was interviewed as part of the New South Wales Bar Oral History Series, which is available on the Bar Association website and on YouTube. As well as being asked about the Lindy Chamberlain trial, he was also asked about the strong civil liberty streak in his work. I don't like politicians and bureaucrats who get together and pass almost mindless laws in the pretense that they're necessary for the continuing existence of the community. The anti-terrorist legislation, which was very much abused in the case of Dr Hanif. Um, The bikey legislation, which is just crazy. And now back to Phil Bolton and the Whigs. And he took on the cases. He he was one of the first to defend people of charged with terrorism. Uh, He defended a fellow called Israel Huck, who was a medical student Mm. uh, who'd gone to... uh, Pakistan to train with Lashkar-e-Toiba to fight the Indian Army on the border of uh, India. That fellow's father dragged him back to Australia. ASIO said to him, we want you to give evidence against a fellow I was representing, Fahim Lodi, uh, and uh, if you give evidence against him, we won't charge you. He refused. And then they charged him with training with a terrorist organisation and Ian Barker defended him and the case collapsed because of the unfairness that was rendered to him through the ASIO questioning process. <clears throat> that, was, that was a very big uh, result. Mm-hmm. And can I tell you, a couple of years ago I was walking past St Vincent's Hospital 
And a fellow walked up beside me. He said, you're a lawyer, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. My name's Philip Bolton. He said, oh, that's who you are. He said, I remember you. He said, uh, my name is Israel Huck. I said, oh, wow, how are you? Wow. <laughs> he said, yeah, I'm good. He said, uh, I'm a doctor. I work at St. Vincent's Hospital. Oh, wow. 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 Thank God. I, I said, yeah. uh, what's happened to your life? He said, oh, that was a bad stage. I got through that. Mm. And, you know, I was young and stupid. Uh, and um, he leads a very, very normal existence in suburban Sydney, going to work every day with a family. Uh, Ian Barker kept him out of prison. <laughs> My client's wow. still there, like nearly 18 years later. It's funny in the law how, you know, these people who give their names to cases kind of live in our kind of imaginations as almost celebrities, but... As the years go by, they're just living their life in the suburbs and no one knows what they're doing and they cease to exist in our minds as real people. They're just case names, I guess. But what a, what a legacy that like, Ian leaves behind, you know. Mm. Like, like his work becomes legend now, you know, thanks yeah. to stories like that. And I love a good redemption story as well. <laughs> I mean, that's just amazing. It's incredible. He, he also acted, I think, for Lionel Murphy, sometime Attorney General and... High Court judge. judge. Yeah, so this yeah. this is a great story. Um, Lionel Murphy had been convicted at his first trial. He mm. had the world's best defence uh, and no criticism at all, even by a comparison with his lawyers in the first trial. Though he won his appeal and he went back for a retrial. This time Barker appeared for him and Barker completely changed the dynamic of the courtroom was much more aggressive it was much more of an attack uh, on the prosecution's case and most controversially the accused Lionel Murphy gave a doc statement Mm. and did Mm. not give evidence in Mm. his trial even though he was a serving High Court judge. He was a serving High Court <laughs> judge. <laughs> Who some people might have thought might be capable of submitting to cross-examination. Yeah. <laughs> so some of our listeners might need to be told what a doc statement is. Yeah. They don't yeah. even exist anymore. So back in those days, uh, the accused was entitled to give an unsworn statement to the jury without being questioned and certainly without being cross-examined by oh, a indeed, prosecutor. Yeah. So that was called a doc statement. And... It was a, a mechanism that was established to assist the downtrodden who were outgunned in court. Uh, Ian Barker and a coterie of lawyers that were beside him that was a brains trust that worked on this case together, they all said, why on earth would you go in the witness box, Lionel? Uh, you can just give a doc statement. Uh, one of those, one of those uh, brains trust members... Uh, was a public defender called Bill Hosking and wow. Bill in his own way was a lion of the trial courtroom. Mm. Bill, Des Anderson, uh, who back in the 1980s was uh, a whisperer who was always able to uh, weave magic in the jury courtroom. Mm. These people ran a different trial for Murphy he was acquitted and you know that he went back to the bench and then there was a um, series of moves to uh, investigate Murphy for all kinds 
of alleged judicial misconduct and personal misconduct and before any of it was actually determined uh, he died of a uh, of a very severe cancer illness mm. yeah. yeah so was was Ian, was Ian involved in presumably he was a whole lot of cases that no one's heard of that weren't sort of particularly high profile of course of course lots of lots of under the radar cases but also lots of very high profile cases so that he was often in the newspaper often walking out of court on television he he appeared for um, criminals of very uh, high profile he appeared for people who were well known uh, not just criminal cases but typically criminal cases he he won the appeal for Timothy Anderson who was a, a young man a member of Ananda Marga uh, yeah. who was convicted of murdering uh, and attempting to murder uh, people as a result of the Hilton bombing uh, the bomb went off uh, in unexpected circumstances and killed a policeman and two garbage collectors. He shouldn't have been convicted, as it happens, uh, and Barker appeared on the appeal and demonstrated all of the faults in the evidence in the trial uh, to the point where the Chief Justice of New South Wales, Murray Gleeson, was totally convinced that the prosecution case was run unfairly and was illogical and ordered an acquittal, even though, for lawyers, this is an interesting point, the evidence was not strictly unreasonable Mm. leading to a verdict of acquittal. Uh, The trial was conducted strategically in a way which, if there'd been a retrial would have meant the Crown would have had the advantage of chopping and changing their strategy in an unfair manner. So he said, enough is enough. We're not going to give them a second chance. Yep. Wow. And Barker came up with that strategy. Mm-hmm. So was he ever spoken about as a potential sort of judge of any particular court? Or is he one of these people whose passion was defence or passion was advocacy? Yeah. And that wouldn't have been his thing? Well, certainly the latter. Uh, being a judge was not his thing. Yeah. I'm not at all sure that he wasn't given the opportunity to be a judge. Mm. And I would be staggered if he wasn't given the opportunity to be a judge in the Northern Territory, for instance. Mm. I think the reality is that he didn't like the idea of being locked away in a judicial ivory tower. He's somebody who loved to mix with people. He had an easy way with people. Uh, He loved to crack open a bottle of wine on a Friday night Mm. and uh, to sing songs and uh, get along with people. And I just think that he thought judges are far too boring for me (laughs) (laughs) so Phil was he at the Sydney bar when you met him or was he still up in oh no Uh, oh he was at the bar in Sydney from 1980 
Yeah. Uh, so I was a solicitor then. Yeah. Uh, and I came to the bar in '88. Yep. Uh, he was all through his career in Sydney in Frederick Jordan Chambers, yep. and Frederick Jordan certainly in the 1980s was the place to be if you're a criminal lawyer and he was the king of mm. of uh, that group and ultimately was the leader of Frederick Jordan mm. so I first came across him where I came across him when I was involved in the Julian Motti case I uh, went to the High Court and I think that judgment was in maybe 2012 or something and um, he was seen, obviously, still at the top of his game and he won that case in the High Court. He was brilliant. His arguments are inspired. How does one, like, you know, by reference to him and his career, how do you survive so long at the bar? How do you, how do, you do it at the top of your game? Uh, so he was a hard worker. He, though, had um, a very supportive partner. Uh, his wife, very long standing his second wife, as it happens, uh, was um, his clerk. She had been the floor clerk and they got married and mm. uh, then um, she was a great support. Penny was a perfect partner for Ian. But he's also had other interests and yet he never tired of the court. He, he never tired of doing what he was doing. In fact, he was still very, very keen to continue when ultimately he was convinced to hang up his boots in 2017. He was well into his 80s by then Mm. and he was not happy to give it up. So the client in that Motti case um, has now uh, also died and, um, so I can say this, (laughs) was quite difficult and um, very sort of brilliant sort of person but quite difficult in a way, and Ian was um, really humble and also really kind to him in my observations of it. Um, Obviously appreciated that he was in a horrible situation and that was probably impacting on his behaviour. That was my observation, that he was a kind person. Is that that accurate? Yeah, he was a kind person when he chose to be. (laughs) Uh, I can tell you he was a very hard player. Uh, and his opponents in court found it very difficult to get along with him at times. Uh, It's not that he was necessarily rude or abrupt. He was unforgiving and merciless. Uh, And often his opponents would complain. And they would complain, basically, because they weren't getting what they wanted. Mm -hmm. But he was a hard player. uh, But without histrionics... Mm. I know one of my good friends always complains about Ian Barker because he was ground into the dirt by him. So the only times I actually got to appear with him, I was his junior. And interestingly, both cases, we were acting for lawyers and both cases involved their possession of child pornography. Uh, One of them was a friend very good friend of mine, a floor member, uh, who was charged with child pornography. And I started his case and was sort of floundering a bit and eventually we called on Ian to come in and Ian ran this 
beautiful technical point. <laughs> like <laughs> such an elegant technical point that had nothing to do with the merits of the case. Although the fellow should never have been charged, to be honest. And he won it because of this beautiful technicality. And the second fellow was another friend, uh, Patrick Power, who was the uh, Deputy Senior Crown Prosecutor mm-hmm. who had child pornography on his work computer and foolishly took the computer into work when it wasn't playing when it was playing up and said there's something wrong with my computer I said yeah you've got child pornography on it Patrick mm-hmm. anyway Ian represented him and I was his junior and he went to Patrick went to prison but we kept the the damage down to a minimum and people would dream to get Patrick Power's sentence for child yeah. pornography yeah. offences these days. Yeah, he got six months in or something, didn't he? Nine months, I Nine think. months, yeah. yeah. Mm. Was he a hard taskmaster as a leader or was he...? No, he was yeah. diffident. You know, yeah. he was happy to hear what everybody had to say. Uh, he absorbed what he was receiving. He had ideas about... But there was no attitude. There was no banging of the table. Mm. There was no overbearing attitude. Mm. Is there things about him... And the way that he practiced that that you would think about if you were reflecting on the professions changed or new mores or ways of doing things that you might deprecate? Oh he 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 definitely was a product of his era, so that somebody who spent most of their life in Central Australia in the nineteen sixties doesn't have exactly the same world view as somebody who's spent their life in Redfern through the 90s and Hmm. up until now. So in some senses he was actually quite cautious and conservative uh, and his views a little bit unreconstructed, to be honest, Hmm. but never nasty, never nasty. Philip, thanks so much for coming in and sharing the stories. What a legacy Ian's left behind and um, it's great that you can come in here and shed light on it for, um, for our audience. Thanks again. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Wigs. It's great to be here and we are going to end the show now with fun things. Felicity Graham, please tell us what is your fun thing for January. Well... I think that in January it's possible, it's just ever so possible that our wigs merch oh. arrive in the post ready for dispatch to our fans. I'm going to insert a clap and applause there. Fantastic. What a fun thing. Yeah. So coming up soon, if you're a listener of the wigs yep. and you want everyone to know, you will be able to get your own wigs lapel pin. Bring have, it. So have we talked about you getting married yet? <laughs> yeah. You, I was going to drop it if you did. <laughs> okay, so my other fun thing is... <laughs> Just a second. After... No. I'm joking. <laughs> a third wedding. <laughs> after the last Wigs episode... Like directly after. Like directly after. Inspired by. I walked up to uh, Victoria Park. And I thought you were going to say that you proposed. You didn't propose, did you? Well, I sort of did. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> because you feminist icon. He proposed, and then whoever did it first proposed. Well, he proposed. <laughs> a different day. Asked asked the question. Had had a ring, 
And then I said, hang on a minute, I was meant to propose to you. <laughs> Will wow. you marry me? And I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to say no. And then was I'm he on his knees? Propose. He was, yep, he was down on a knee and he said yes to my question. And then he said, so is that a yes from you? Did he hit the knee and then did you go, oh my God? Like, is that, like, did that, oh my God, he did that happen? Yeah, it's right. <laughs> Is he all right? No, but like, Did you go down on a knee? <laughs> yeah, what's... Well, we were both sort of... Kneeling? On the grass, yeah. Oh, okay, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sounds painful. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's so exciting. Congratulations, Felicity Graham. Fantastic, oh, yeah. yes, well done. That's great news. Yeah. When's the wedding? Uh, July. You know oh. what? That's my fun thing, too. You're, You're coming in- to my wedding? Well, I've, uh, I haven't been invited yet. Your engagement is my fun thing. There you go. I'm, I'm going to give it to you. You don't yeah. get away see the wedding. No, I'm just saying, like, just- I'm donating my fun thing to you because it's such shit-hot news. Bang. There you go. You've okay. been crowned You've my like fun thing. You've got three minutes or something. Yeah, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, how can you top that, Stephen Lawrence? You can't. So, S- Stephen Breyer, I think, is it Stephen Breyer, who was a United States Supreme Court judge? He's retired. Yes. Yeah, has now retired. And I was just reading that Biden is going to... He read this on Fox News. Yeah, Fox News. He's going to appoint the vice president, Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. She's going to go on the Supreme Court. What gives a bit of support to that is she's a black woman and he said he's going to appoint a black woman. She's a lawyer? She's a lawyer. She's a former attorney general, etc. Then he's going to appoint Hillary Clinton as the new vice president. Then she's going to kill Biden. She's going to become the president. No, she's not going to kill him. He's going to quit. Oh, he's going to quit. Sorry. Sorry, I mixed that up. No, Epstein killed will, so many people. Epstein will show up from the dead. This is on Fox News. <laughs> it's all over the internet. I just, all over the internet. I haven't it found it all anything. afternoon. It's fantastic. Okay. I give it 50-50 odds. Who, Biden? Hey. Who? No, like that, that scenario. That's like scenario. the craziest shit has happened <laughs> yeah, in the US. I agree. So like, fuck. Yeah, I, agree. I, 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 totally I believe that. anything yeah. that happened in the US. Yeah, but as I say, you have not topped Felicity's fun thing. So I reckon well it's, yeah. And Felicity's getting married. Uh, Manuel Kukasharian. <laughs> I saw Turin Dot last week. Oh, yeah? Go and see it. It's really a fabulous example of it. It's playing at the Opera House. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 Wow, that's a fun Go thing. Look at that. Really fun. Straight away. Yeah. Um, I've donated my fun thing. Uh, but please listen to my new my new show. <laughs> What's it called? It's called Minimal. Thank you. I think we talked about it last it's, week. When am I being interviewed on it? Uh, it's coming up. It's coming yeah, up. The slate yeah, is filling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have yeah, some. Yeah. Podcast I have, for being on. I know. I'm sorry. I have some huge names coming up, and I mean huge. Steve so, Lawrence, Manny. Well, yeah, yeah, aside from the present company. Djokovic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, on par, okay? Uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that's January taken care of. It's great to be back. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. We will see you in February. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz. 